0: Create your perfect vacation in the land of the sky with the region's most popular online travel guide. Plan your next getaway to Asheville and the North Carolina Blue Ridge Mountains by visiting RomanticAsheville.com. Nest Realty and realtor Janet Oppenheimer. A senior resource specialist, Janet serves the Asheville, North Carolina area. Visit nestrealty.com and look for your trusted mountain community advisor, Janet Oppenheimer. And by Asheville Farms, unlock the potential CBD has in your life with Western North Carolina's premier supplier of high-quality hemp and CBD products. Visit our store at 28 North Lexington Avenue in Asheville and by visiting AshevilleHempFarmsNC.com.
1: Hi, this is Marilyn Ball. Welcome to Speaking of Travel right here on iHeartRadio 570 WWNC. And remember, you can always listen to this episode of Speaking of Travel or any past episode with a simple click on the Speaking of Travel website. That's speakingoftravel.net and on all major podcast platforms. And be sure when you visit speakingoftravel.net to sign up for the Travel Club. You'll receive travel news and helpful tips and links to stories from people who believe in a world where we can have adventures and discover generosity, wisdom, and kindness, and recognizes there are a lot of good people in the world. So what do you all remember most about the 70s? Well, I certainly went through a lot of changes in the 70s myself, but not nearly as many as my guest today, Amy Edelstein. She's a transformative educator, a meditation teacher, founder of Inner Strength Education, co-founder of Emergence Education Press, and the author of a number of books, including Adventure in Zanzgar. It's a young woman solitary journey to reach physical and metaphysical heights. And Amy, you're taking us to a world way removed from the people I was growing up with, even in Washington, D.C. in the 70s. Thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. So Amy, you were really going on a different path. Than I was and a lot of people were back in the 70s. There there was a lot going on. There were a lot of movements. People were, you know, we were in a war. There was a lot going on. Give us a little backstory on what was going on with you and why you decided to go take this spiritual path.
2: Well, I was a product of the 70s. I graduated high school in 1979. And at that time, I was very influenced by a number of books that had come out during the earlier part of that decade, including Be Here Now and a yoga book called Richard Hittleman's 28 Day Guide to Yoga. People from that era might remember it. And both of those individuals were Americans who had taken on a deep meditation practice. And I was reading philosophers, and I was involved in uh, the Reconstructionist Judaism, which was more forward thinking and believed in the equality of women and different things that were really coming out of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, When I went to college, I went to a great Ivy League school with Fabulous professors, but I was really searching for people with wisdom, not just knowledge. And that adventure took me east. I went to India in 1983 and spent the better part of the next four years there, uh, 12 months of which I spent just walking in the high Himalayas across four states of northern India and Nepal and visiting with local people and. Staying in remote areas and really uh, adventuring beyond the beaten path. And then in between, I was also staying uh, in various centers for philosophical and spiritual learning. So I lived in Rishikesh for a year, I lived in Dharamsala for a year, and I had the opportunity to study with some really phenomenal teachers, uh, both Buddhist and Hindu. Eastern as well as some Western teachers who would come through India in those days.
1: Well, that's very independently minded for you as a young woman to have this kind of uh, motivation even to journey like that. I'm just curious, you know, back in the day, uh, there wasn't so much of that going on, really, from people going to the from America over there how did you even know? I know this sounds in the gist of things, but like how did you know what kind of shoes to get and and hiking gear? Like did you have any concept of how high up you were going and how things were going to change uh just atmospherically? I
2: didn't really prepare in that way. That wasn't really my thing. I was there I I tried to do things more or less the way people who lived there did things. So I, I mean, I walked in tennis shoes. Um, I had a backpack. I had a little rest pad, which was actually quite good to insulate against the cold. I had a down jacket that I wore under a wool, uh, a local wool, sort of caftan-like thing that I'd gotten in cashmere. So that kept me warm and kept me covered and discreet. Um, that was about it. I didn't have a tent. I didn't have walking poles. I didn't have, I, I had a cooking pot and matches and candles to light fires for cooking. So I didn't bring propane or anything like that. I was there for too long. So I was really living in in a place where those kind of things are useful, especially if you're going in and out but if you're spending months or years in that part of the world in that era before the era of cell phones you have to remind people there was no internet there were no cell phones we still had those landlines with those wires that plugged into the wall and in north india and in remote places you sometimes had to travel a day or two to get to a working phone so this was or where i was in the mountains a week or two weeks to get back to a phone so it was just a different uh, world where you were connected across your common humanity not via your technology and that was a beautiful opportunity and a beautiful time and you really can't go back to what it was before technology connected everyone digitally But it doesn't do the same thing that really learning how to connect across our universal humanity does, where you go to a place, you don't know the language, you don't have Google Translate, you might have a few glossary words that you wrote on the back of your notebook, which I used to do. I really did my best to pick up as much of the language as I could. And I learned some Hindi, and I learned some Urdu, and I learned some Tibetan, and then a That combination of that helped me, you know, with the Zanskaris, and you start to communicate through your sensitivity and interest and gratitude, and that's a very beautiful way to connect.
1: Well, I'm curious, Amy, up until like the 1970s, mid-70s, that whole area there was kind of a little hotbed politically there was a lot going on there as far as yeah, tourists coming it wasn't like people just showed up and and came there did you feel any of that shifting while you were there that there was something new going on in the in the in the communities there zanskar
2: as a region is is, is situated in india culturally Geographically, it's part of the Tibetan Plateau, the westernmost corner of the Tibetan Plateau. Geographically, it sits in India. And culturally, it's Tibetan Buddhist, primarily. Um, it, it's a very isolated region. It's a narrow valley, the floor of which is at 3,000 meters, almost 10,000 feet. And then it goes up from there. So it's stayed very isolated. However, it's ringed by it's situate it's it, it's ruled by India politically. On the east is China, Tibet controlled, China, Chinese controlled Tibet. On the west is Pakistan and then Afghanistan, Tajikistan. So it had been closed by India to casual travelers up until uh, 1976. So I was there. About seven years later. And it was the first year where more and more Western tourists, Europeans, Americans, Australians, British, were starting to come. I think that year was one of the first times the Sierra Club took a small group through, and it was very remote for them. But generally, it was. In the twos and threes, you would see people every Westerners every five, six, seven days, and it would be one person or three people together. It wasn't it, there weren't floods of tourists coming through.
1: Well, Amy, when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you found there, what what it was that you were attracted to, and how being there really shifted the way that your life moved, and really get a a little bit more into that. So again, thank you so much for being my guest here on Speaking of Travel. I'm looking forward to talking more with you. This is Marilyn Ball. You're listening to Speaking of Travel, and I'm here with Amy Edelstein, and we'll be right back.
2: Traveling to new places is good for everybody, but sometimes travel can be challenging. The good news is there are products available that can put your traveling concerns at ease. Unlock the potential CBD has in your life with Western North Carolina's premier supplier of high-quality hemp and CBD products. Visit our store at 28 North Lexington Avenue in Asheville and by visiting AshevilleHempFarmsNC.com.
3: Green is good local food, less oil, renewable energy, sustainable peace, tree hugger, say no to GMOs, be kind to animals, don't eat them, go solar, coexist, don't buy a dog, rescue one, keep Asheville weird. We just read the bumper stickers on the back of a Subaru. Welcome to Subiville. Prestige Subaru, on the web at PrestigeSubaru.com. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words...
1: Welcome back to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host Marilyn Ball, and I am here today with Amy Edelstein, and we're talking about her your trek, I guess we could call that. Like how how old were you Amy when this was all going on when you were on this adventure?
2: I was 21. I had my 21st birthday in the mountains of Nepal. And it was i celebrated with you know making some dal and rice on a open fire and watching the stars and listening to the night noises and that was it was really a magic time because that was a time of coming of age and i was marking that time really with my deeper inner commitment to a quest for wisdom and insight and guidance and understanding for how to live a life that would be well lived that would be purposeful and directed and meaningful and exultant that was that would be filled with a kind of fullness and satisfaction and joy that i really didn't see among the adults around me where i grew up in pittsburgh there were happy people, but there weren't people who were really deeply awakened or had that sense that they were living a life of of no blemish. And that's what I was really looking for. And I was in a country where they spoke about that, where the higher human potentials were something that everybody talked about, everybody learned about. Everybody, those were the songs they sang in the festivals. Those were the markers they marked, the human qualities that they remembered as they went to local temple celebrations. And I had grown up in a very Western secular culture where meaning and purpose had taken the back seat. You know, and as part of our American democratic experiment, there was the idea that pluralism and letting everyone find their way and not imposing a specific you know or uh, how to say it, a religious structure that was obvious on everyone, even though, of course, in America we do have quite a few values um, imposed and and preferences made in how our cultural institutions are run. But that's another story but still in our culture the idea was that people will find their own paths towards meaning and purpose and what that did by the time we were in the the 70s it left young people and increasingly now it left young people without a sense of where to go for guidance and there i was in india And also, I spent a little bit of time in Thailand, Burma, Bangladesh, and Nepal, you know, about probably just about a total of five months, you know, across those countries. And my, you know, I once I got to India, I, I just stayed. But in those countries, it was still a big part of the culture to speak about what's human life about and what does it mean to go beyond ego and what does it mean to learn to live as one with consciousness with god How, what does it mean to be without greed and selfishness and aggression what does it mean to to be of service to the world at large not in a social work or self-sacrificing way but what does it mean that that one's life is given over to you know what what this what the whole spirit of of Uh, vitality is calling us towards. You know, whether you want to call it God, or you want to call it life, or you want to call it consciousness, doesn't really matter. Um, I sometimes stay away from the God word just because people have so many fixed ideas. So being there where that was part of the cultural conversation, to me, was I, I, it was like drinking from a a fountain that was inexhaustible and and just flowing with the purest sweetest water it was so delightful i i just felt immediately at home i felt like i could be myself in a way that i never really fit in in a world that was teaching me how to make money and consume and talk about my accomplishments and be liked and all the things that really didn't resonate with me as things I wanted or wanted to spend my life doing and all of a sudden I was found myself in a cultural context where purpose and value and meaning and depth and the unanswerable questions were the things you talked about on the train you know somebody would start talking to you and you would be having these extraordinarily deep conversations and then they would get off and go to their government job somewhere and you'd go off on your search and each one more
1: enlightened by the connection. It's almost like you're describing an altered state of consciousness, Amy. Did you feel that you were kind of moving into some kind of an altered state or did it just all feel so real? Well, I was
2: already doing a lot of meditation I had done, you know, a number of 20 day silent retreats and I'd done various courses and teachings with different teachers. So my whole day from morning to night was all about meditative awareness and questioning and and self-knowledge and looking deeply and, and figuring out what was motivating me and Uh, trying to understand what these concepts I was learning about, impermanence and interconnectedness and emptiness and what did it really mean and how did it manifest in my life? What's the nature of thought? What's the nature of mind? Who am I really? All those questions were just what I was, that was my, those were my higher education studies.
1: (laughs) and i guess you were writing all this down because eventually you wrote a book about it is was journaling something that was happening on a pretty regular basis for you
2: i was always a writer i kept a journal ever since i was 8 years old and my covid project was writing adventure in zanskar which is uh, it's a 2 month journey as part of this longer continuum and and my time there was so touching that when I went to finally write this book, I wrote from my perspective then and and informed by the notes I took. But I really remembered quite a bit of it, even though I wrote it in 2021 and I was there in 1983. That's a lot of years gone by. But Once I started putting, you know, pen to paper, metaphorically, definitely typing this time, uh, it was all very immediate. And I remembered so much about it because it was really an adventure that proved to me beyond any doubt that it was really possible to have a culture that lived in peace and harmony and joy and lightness of being.
1: Well, that's something we all can definitely uh, savor right now in the world. Amy, how can people get more information as they're listening to our conversation?
2: So you can find out more information about the work I do now, which comes out of this journey at innerstrengtheducation.org. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about that a little bit later. And that has information about me and programs. You can also find out more about my work at emergenceeducation.com.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to moving forward on this path that you've been on and finding out how all of this has transformed into the life that you're living now. And the work that you're doing with so many others. Well, this is Marilyn Ball. You're listening to Speaking of Travel. I'm here today with Amy Edelstein, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned.
4: Whether you're traveling to points near or far or traveling on a life journey, every transition is an opportunity regardless of your stage of life. If you, a family member, or a loved one is looking to downsize, retire, or buy or sell a home, contact your trusted Mountain Community Advisor, Janet Oppenheimer, from Nest Realty in Asheville. As a senior real estate specialist, Janet will help and guide you through any life transition one step at a time. Contact Janet at nestrealty.com today, helping you find that perfect home to fit your next journey. Nest Realty. This is Tina Kinsey with Asheville Regional Airport and I have a travel tip for you. Let's talk about Real ID. What is it and what is the new deadline? 2023 is now the year to make sure you get your Real ID and the new deadline is May 3rd, 2023. The Department of Homeland Security is requiring all domestic air travelers to have a specific kind of driver's license for air travel, and this is called a REAL ID. It's easy to get. In North Carolina, you just visit a Division of Motor Vehicles driver license office and bring the necessary documents with you. You can go online and find all of that information at the NCDMV. Then you pay a small fee and you will receive your new Real ID driver license in the mail within just a few weeks. A North Carolina Real ID includes a star emblem in the upper right corner of the license. That's how you know that that is a Real ID. And the TSA will begin requiring the Real ID at security checkpoints in May of 2023. So don't delay. Visit the DMV as soon as you can. Of note, if you have a passport, this can also be used as your identification to go through airport security in lieu of a real ID. For more information about Asheville Regional Airport, including answers to many frequently asked questions, visit FlyAVL.com.
3: Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on jupiter and mars in other words
1: welcome back to speaking of travel i'm your host marilyn ball and i'm here today with amy edelstein and we're talking about well really amy this path that you've been on since such a young age and give us an idea how long you were on this quest
2: well It started probably when I was a young child. It officially started when I was in high school and started reading books, and I've never stopped. So I'm 60 now. So, whatever, how you do the math. (laughs) A long time. A long time. And, you know, as we were talking just before the break, adventure in Zanskar was, it was part of my journey that I felt. I always felt tremendous gratitude for because, through you know, inevitably, we go through ups and downs in our lives. We have personal challenges, cultural challenges. We live through difficult times, or people around us go through difficult times. And, you know, I would often see people, I was always uh, trying to. Figure out what are the structures of culture that help create communities that bring out our higher potentials, and inevitably, you know, one experiment or another would fail, and there would be division. And you know, as we saw, you know, the farm is still going, but not a lot of not a lot of communal experiments from that time succeeded, or they did for a period, and they learned, they taught something. But living in Zanskar for that period showed me that if you have strong enough values and teachings, and the people there really live the Buddhist teachings, they really, that was, they they live it as much, It's sec, it's not even second nature, it's just as much them as the air they breathe, as the food they eat, as the clothes they wear, it's not something that's put on or thought about, And the teachings about going from ignorance to an awakened state, recognizing the karmic consequences, that all of your actions set into motion a momentum. And is that momentum going to be for good or for ill? Is it going to be positive and support other people, uplift other people or negative? Being generous towards others, understanding them, supporting them ultimately brings one deep joy and living without attachment recognizing that we're all going to die that the movement of life is from birth to death so death is inevitable suffering or sadness around that can be mitigated with deeper understanding and i saw those principles in action and i stayed with people who were just so happy the women were were wild and free and strong because it's so isolated. The genders were much more uh, equal, even though the, the monastic system was still very patriarchal, you know, preferencing males over females. In reality, life was much more mixed. Zanskari women could marry up to four men, uh, which is also very practical there, but it makes them very strong and free and happy and i experienced that uniformity from village to village to village some were poorer some seemed to have more but they were so friendly so free so unafraid the children were just vibrant and smart and you'd have these young monks coming back from the monastery it was the summertime; they come back to help with the harvest and they teach their families to read because they were learning to read there they would teach their families the dharma because they're learning different teachings and stories about the buddha and that was the currency of life and they hadn't had a murder in i don't know how many decades until they opened up to tourism there just wasn't that sense of aggression and greed and mistrust that I was so used to living with coming from an American city. And it gave me hope. You know, it just made me feel like if you create the right conditions, humanity can flourish. Not necessarily in material goods, but in a sustainable way of life that has joy at its core. And knowing that because I'd seen it, not just reading about it, was so life-altering for me. And that's why of all my time there, I met extraordinary teachers. I did amazing retreats. I had really wild adventures. I was exposed to all kinds of things over those years. But this was the time I felt was so important for me to write about Because it gave me hope.
1: It sounds as if you were able to take all of that into your service, your work, your love, your passion to create these conditions where joy is at its core in the work that you do. Let's talk a little bit about how you've transformed into the work that you do now.
2: Yeah. Well, in. 2014, I founded a nonprofit called Inner Strength Education, and I wrote a curriculum that took the best of my 35 years at that point of uh, inner work and translated it into a program that would be meaningful and transformative for teenagers in Philadelphia. Now. I hadn't set foot in a high school since I graduated in 1979 and I actually graduated high school in three years because I really hated it. So it sounds like a little bit like some of the things you're telling me about yourself was I just felt I needed to get out, that it was not, it, it was not, you know, I went to public school, it wasn't, it was fine for what it was, but it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a world I wanted to spend too much time in. And I'd never gone back to high school. After being in Asia, came back to, lived in Europe for a while in the States. And I was a founding member of a meditation center that lasted for 27 years until it came to its natural ending. And so I had done a lot of writing and research and interviewing and dialoguing with you know, all the contemporary philosophers and spiritual teachers and did a lot of practice and did a lot of group work and dialogue work. So I had really explored a lot, especially about Socratic dialogue and its transformative potential about deep meditation. And here I was in Philadelphia, and I wanted to work specifically with the people in my community. Because when you uh, when you're a founding member of a meditation community and you travel around the world, you stay pretty much with people with disposable time and income, who have the opportunity, education, and and a little bit of advent spirit of adventure to explore that. And there I was living in Philadelphia, which is the tenth poorest of the 10 largest cities in America. And what I saw when I moved there was deeply painful because I saw poverty and hopelessness and violence that I had never seen in the worst slums of India.
1: Well, Amy, when we come back, let's talk more about how this transformed not only the work that you do. With the work of so many who have been benefited from the work that you do as well. So thank you so much again. And how can people get connected as they're listening here to, to you and your and the programs uh, that you're involved with? The
2: organization is called innerstrengtheducation.org. The books, Adventure in Zanskar and a book about the program, The Conscious Classroom, both of which are award-winning. Adventure in Zanskar won a Nautilus Award and a Ben Franklin Award and Conscious Classroom won an Ippy Award. So they're good books, worth getting. You can get them on Amazon. And you can also find out more about my work at emergenceeducation.com or com.
1: Well, Amy, thank you so much. I can't wait to hear more and really even explore how we can get involved, how we can help support and, and become a little bit more uh, mindful of what's happening out in the world today. Well, this is Marilyn Ball, you're listening to Speaking of Travel, and we'll be right back.
0: Why not make the most of the beautiful winter season and plan your next vacation or staycation to Asheville and the North Carolina Blue Ridge Mountains? Create your perfect winter wonderland adventure in the land of the sky with the region's most popular online travel guide. Not just for couples, RomanticAsheville.com is a 900-page online guide covering a nearly 100-mile radius around Asheville, North North Carolina. There are so many special places and awe-inspiring vistas around nearly every corner, and this is the perfect time to create safe and memorable adventures across Western North Carolina. Visit romanticashville.com today. Fly
3: me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars. In other words,
1: oh Welcome back to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host, Marilyn Ball, and I'm here today with Amy Edelstein. Amy, you have so much work happening around you. It's You've written this wonderful award-winning book. You, you have the programs. You're a teacher. And I want to hear more about the inner strength education program, how you went from being in a place where there was so much hope to coming back to a place where, as you said, was so much hopelessness. How did, how did you find a way to kind of balance that for yourself? When I
2: started working with teenagers in the public school system of Philadelphia, I knew from my own experience and being on the path, meeting thousands of people over the years, that it's always possible to transform and you never really know what does it. But, you know, some little comment, something that you've heard a thousand times from other people, somebody says, and it comes from, you know, just beyond your vision and you go, oh, I get it. And then I, I saw people over and over again come to life and their potentials and capacities just start to flower. And I knew that the, the particularly the work that I had understood through learning about systems thinking and large scale systems, which is really goes back to the Eastern understanding of, of cause and effect, how there are big momentums set into place and those momentums are cosmic in terms of how the universe was formed were connected with stars that exploded that died billions of years ago because when they exploded they formed gases and those literally atoms and molecules from that oxygen from that star that exploded a billion years ago stars that stardust that were star stuff that we're breathing right now our atmosphere is made up of that. So you, you have to start understanding cause and effect in this massive scale. Not just I did something and somebody felt bad, but a star exploded a billion years ago and I'm breathing it. So how, do, how disconnected are we really? And I started to see just the world in terms of these systems and understand that we could tweak things at different places and it would have a downstream effect. And also just recognizing that we're part and parcel of this momentum of change in the global world and how that influences our personal experience. It helps depersonalize a lot of the things that we struggle with. You know, one of the things people struggle with now is there are too many choices. And I don't, you know, I just don't want to think. I don't want to decide one more thing. I don't want a hundred cold cereals to pick from they've actually done studies and if you give people a choice between two things they tend to be more satisfied with it than if you give a choice them a choice between 10 things so like you know there was a study with salad dressings you only had a choice one or two you were relatively okay if you had 10 you, and you didn't basically people were more dissatisfied because they thought they'd chosen one that wasn't if they'd chosen something else they would have been happier now that's a product of of so many different things we didn't have all those choices in earlier eras so i started to see how young people are driving themselves crazy you know where do i go to school what do i do here what do i do that? why can't i look like this why can't i be thinner why can't i do that and a lot of the depression and anxiety comes from this sense of overwhelm and lack of direction and lack of choice lack of lack of a, a clear framework or rubric to make positive choices for one's life. It's just so confusing. Nobody's guiding the ship. Nobody, you know, if you ask kids nowadays, where do you turn to for advice first? Google. Even relationship, even intimate problems, then they'll talk to a parent or a friend or, but first, so you're crowdsourcing from, you know, but who knows if they have any wisdom? Just because a lot of people say that doesn't mean it's helpful. You know? I've learned not to trust Yelp reviews for restaurants because my tastes aren't the same as everybody else's no Joe's pizza is not really like my fave so anyway what I did coming out of you know many years of studying ancient philosophies contemporary philosophies, science culture politics and really looking at how the world works. I I came up with a curriculum that uses the best of evidence-based mindfulness practices and teaches compassion for self and other, teaches students a very simple understanding of culture change, how the world's gotten more complicated, how that's a positive. We have self-expression. We have more opportunity to express ourselves in a way that we feel is authentic to ourselves, less restriction, but less social support. And we also talk about the evo- 300 million year evolutionary development of the brain and the period of the adolescent brain. So, giving teenagers at that formative time of life a lot of different avenues. So it's not just sit and be calm, or sit and watch your mind, or sit and learn how to de stress, but it's it's a it's a it's a full. Exploratory system so that students learn compassion building, they learn social emotional skills, and they learn how to explore open ended questions that they're rarely asked these days. Who am I? How shall I live? Not what the right answer is, but how do I think about these things in a way that makes sense? We're 20,000 students later. So this is not a one touch thing. This is once a week for 12 weeks in school as part of your curriculum. 20,000 kids.
1: Well, someday there's going to be 40,000 and 60,000 and 100,000, and we're going to see the change that is possible that you're helping to create from the journey that you've been on. What a gift. What a calling. What a service. It must be so just looking back on your life, being able to say, wow, this led to this and here and here and here and and now a movement even where we're able to make all of that come closer to being what you witnessed yourself all those years ago. Yeah.
2: I mean, I feel like I was so lucky because I was born, I always, uh, I was born at the right time, but I always felt like I was born too late, you know, that, because I went to, I went to India in 1983, but the real explorers went in the 60s, and I was too late. And I would meet these people who were 15 years older than me, and they, you know, say, "Oh, what it used to be like." So I always felt like I was behind the times, but it was perfect because the early East meets West explorers, not the ones from the late 1800s, because there were, you know, certainly those two, but they came back to America and started laying the foundation so that by the time I was doing this work uh, it was more culturally acceptable and so I owe a huge debt of gratitude to all of those early pioneers my elder brothers and sisters and I'm you know so appreciative that I'm able to do this and see the evolution of these tools because now they're coming into the communities of color and they're evolving because it was mostly white, college-educated men who brought these back from India in the early years. Or, and and so now they're evolving again in understanding, you know, co- colonization and the impact and what that means and how to create safe spaces, how to understand trauma, how to use these tools for trauma, and and not to um, be overly macho about them. And so there are a lot. There's a lot of good. A very important innovation happening now. And I'm thrilled to be a part of that and to be introducing young people to it so they can be innovators of this work in the future. And I'm building the organization for them to take over.
1: Well, when you talk about evolution, you talk about breathing stardust and being all a part of that, you're helping to keep it going to keep that momentum and that light out there so that it's just continually transforming. And Amy, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and thoughts and backstory with us here on Speaking of Travel. And tell us again how we can all get more information, read your books, just Connect with you, get on your newsletter list, and yeah, that would be awesome.
2: Great. Well, definitely join the newsletter at innerstrengtheducation.org. And if you feel moved, it's a nonprofit, and that you know, any donations of whatever size, a few dollars here, goes straight to really supporting inner city kids, uh, most of whom come from families of poverty, which is an income of $24,000 a year for a family of four.
1: Well, well, definitely. I've been getting your newsletter now, and I look forward to it being in, in my inbox. It always makes me feel better. So thank you again, and I'll look forward to uh, sharing what you're doing and getting the word out there and helping support uh, your team and the people who are around you. Thank you again for being here on Speaking of Travel.
2: Thank you so much. Pleasure talking with you.
1: You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Because remember, life is short. Don't postpone joy.